0: To the Freedom Pact. I am delighted today to be joined by Professor A.C. Graylin. Anthony Graylin is Master of the New College of the Humanities and a Fellow of St. Anne's College, Oxford. Until 2011, he was Professor of Philosophy at Birkbeck College, University of London. Anthony has written and edited over 30 books on philosophy and is a frequent media contributor. Anthony's latest book, The Frontiers of Knowledge, What We Know About Science, History and the Mind, is the topic today. Professor AC Gray, it's a pleasure. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much for having me on.
0: Such a pleasure. So um, I figured that a place I'd love to start is in the new book, um, you say, without overstatement, science is humanity's greatest achievement. Um, And I found this interesting because you point to this paradox in the book, um, where it's kind of like the more we figure out about ourselves, about the world, about the universe, the less it seems like we actually know. So I wonder, could you talk about this concept of the paradox of knowledge?
1: Well, well, the paradox isn't that the more we know, the less we know. <laughs> it is that the more we know, the more we realise we don't know. Don't know, yes. The, yes. The, the, more, the more we understand that there is much, much more to be uh, discovered and, and explored out there. Uh, I sometimes use the example of, a, of an island. If you imagine an island growing bigger uh, in, in the ocean, as it does so, so this would be our knowledge expanding, so its shoreline becomes longer. So that, that means that the frontier of knowledge is as we're getting longer and longer because every discovery we make, every insight we achieve, we see that there are more questions to be asked.
0: I really, really appreciate that. And another thing which I really liked in the book is that you take a multidisciplinary approach um, to explore these ideas. You go throughout history, through science, through psychology. Um, I very much liked how you branched disciplines together in the book. Um, so I would just love to, to know why is it important to branch different disciplines, different contexts, different ideas together to get a uh, coherent, um, you know, approach, a coherent worldview?
1: Well, let me give you a, an example, a little anecdote, which really illustrates how important it is that one should have a, a, a sort of general Um, you know, literacy. Obviously, it's important to have one's expertise in one or two areas, but to be literate in all areas so that one has a a wide context. And the example is this, back in the time that President Reagan was uh, President of the United States, the the idea was put forward that the United States could put missiles up in space, uh, up on satellites in space, to interdict any intercontinental ballistic missiles coming from the Soviet Union towards the US. Now it turned out actually that this was just a bit of a scam, it was a bit of propaganda to frighten the Soviets, to to make them think they were never going to be able to afford something comparable. But at the time that this was suggested, uh, a a really great physicist, a man called Steven Weinberg, one of the Nobel Prize winners for the uh, work on the standard model of the atom, he said, it doesn't bother me that President Reagan doesn't know any science, but it does bother me that he doesn't know any history and philosophy. Because if he did, you would see that this was a wrong use of science. So it's, it beautifully illustrates the point that having a kind of conspective view and having a good general, really intelligent overview of all the, the, the landscape of knowledge in a way helps one to put things into context and to be good at participating in decisions about the right way to act and to use our knowledge
0: i really appreciate that answer and i think that i would we'll come back to sort of science but i would love to just kind of get some context in yourself and for a bit more background information for our audience how did you kind of get interested on this uh philosophical journey that you've been on where did it begin?
1: Oh gosh well it, uh, it started really very, very young. Uh, I spent my childhood uh, in Africa. My dad was working uh, out there and um you know there was very little in the way of of we didn't have television. You couldn't go for country walks because if you did you'd be eaten by lions. <laughs> so um as kids we we were stuck really with with reading which I suppose was was a good a good thing to be stuck with. And we had a set of encyclopedia at home, which I was very, very obsessed by. And I used to page through this, uh, there were 12 volumes of this encyclopedia and uh, try to make sense of the entries in it. I became very fascinated by these most rather handsome, bearded um, you know, busts of Aristotle and Socrates and so forth. I really, really wanted to know more and to be able to read them. And when I was 12, I, I managed to get a ticket for the grown-up part of the local library where we lived. We lived in a little town called Indola on the Copper Belt in what is now Zambia. And a lot of people had, you know, gone out to sort of run the empire in Africa and then promptly died of tropical diseases, leaving their books for this library. So it was actually quite a good library. And I went in with my uh, grown-up reader's ticket, and practically the first thing I saw was the complete works of Plato, translated by Benjamin Jowett. Now, i would already, of course, you know, been thinking to myself, well, I'd really love to know what these guys were, were about. And I took down the first volume and it happened to contain some very early dialogues of Plato, so very accessible, easy to read. And the one that I opened out, I think it was the second or third in the, in the uh, sequence, was a dialogue called The Carmedes, which is about continence, about self-restraint. But it wasn't so much what the topic was about It was the fact that these great iconic figures of our civilization could dedicate themselves to trying to think about things like this. And and indeed, many of these early dialogues of of Plato's don't ever come to a conclusion. So we don't learn in the end what what self-restraint or confidence is or why it should be a great virtue and so on. But the debate, the exploration of the idea, I found that absolutely exhilarating. And I thought to myself, well, if this is what these guys did, then I'm going to do it as well. But then I should just mention, Jay, that, that a very, very lovely thing happened after us, which is that, you see, philosophy, the word, although these days it denotes something quite specialised and you know, sort of thoroughgoing when you study it at university, for example, the, the real genuine meaning of the word is inquiry, trying to make sense of things. Trying to understand, trying to put things in connection with one another, which ultimately, of course, is the great aim in all our inquiries, is to make sense. And I discovered that, that to be interested in philosophy makes a demand of you to be interested in everything and to try to find out about everything. And so that idea of a, of a very general literacy on either side of your specialism, your expertise, is one of the things that's really important to this enterprise. And so, of course, it has meant that my life has been full of joy from learning and reading and trying to to make sense, you know, and and trying to do that thing of putting, putting things into connection with one another.
0: I thought that was a fantastic answer. What were some of the most influential books that you read in your teenage years?
1: Well, I was very lucky uh, after this experience of encountering the um, the dialogues of as, Plato as translated by George, and having an opportunity to read some of them, um, I, I came across a, a volume, a, a one-volume version, of G. H. Lewis's Biographical History of Philosophy. This was a book that was published uh, uh, just after the middle of the nineteenth century, but it was based on quite a lot of the really excellent scholarship, the the philological scholarship that had been done in Germany. Germany was really the kind of intellectual center of the world in the 18th and 19th century from this point of view. G.H. Lewis, by the way, was a polymath, a very good writer, smart guy. He was the consort of George Eliot, the the, the novelist, and um, he he was interested in in philosophy, he was interested in psychology. Uh, He wrote a wonderful biography of Goethe, which is still kind of the standard biography, really. But anyway, this biographical history of philosophy, as it suggests, it gives little biographies of the great philosophers all the way from um, Thales, right at the beginning of the tradition. But then it talks about their views and reports their views. And I devoured this book. I mean, I read it so many times that it it quite literally fell apart. The the copy that I have now is all stuck together with a serotape and everything, because it was, pretty well until I got back to the UK, you know, when my father uh, retired, came back to the UK just about the time I was going off to university. And then, of course, I had a university library uh, available and I could go and get hold of some of these texts myself. But until that point, it was uh, um, uh, Lewis and also Russell, Bertrand Russell's History of Western Philosophy. So I read that. I read Russell's um, the Problems of Philosophy, which is a little introduction to the theory of knowledge and metaphysics. I mean, I read everything I could get my hands on, but as I say, out in the sticks, <laughs> there wasn't a lot. I
0: really appreciate that. I would love to um, kind of tie back in to what we were talking about. So um, you talk in the little bit about... Uh, in the conclusion of the book a little bit about kind of specialization and you talk about these different domains, science, the humanities, for instance. Mm -hmm. Um, Is there a danger that perhaps we can become too specialized or maybe more specifically a better way to do this is do we need to balance scientific advancement, technological advancement with, say, more humanitarian Ethical, moral, legal concerns.
1: Uh, emphatically, yes. As an answer to the, your, your second question, and, and also yes. I mean, there is a big danger. Indeed, it's, it's not a threat which is imminent. It's, it's something which is already the case that that we over-specialize, when we over-fragment, put things into silos, and if you're in a silo, you tend. Um, not to know very much about what is happening in other silos, or, or indeed to have the time or opportunity to find out. Now back in 1959, um, a, a chap called C. P. Snow, he was actually a Cambridge uh, uh, academic and he was a civil servant. He was a scientist by training, but he was also a novelist. He wrote um, rather good novels. In this essay he wrote in 1959 called The Two Cultures, he bemoaned the fact that um, the sciences and the humanities were drifting apart and that people who were specialists uh, in the humanities had very little understanding of what was happening in in science. Of course, people in science perfectly competent and capable of understanding what was happening in the humanities, uh, but very often uh, either didn't have the interest or all the time to pursue it. And yet, for the reason that my little story about Stephen Weinberg and President Reagan illustrates, it's so important that the two Should be speaking to one another and there should be mutual comprehension. I mean uh, at the most pragmatic level most people who go into politics or into the civil service tend not to be scientists and if they are going to be handling public policy decisions uh, without really understanding some of the implications and nuances of what the sciences are or can do or indeed what some of the threats are because you know, science is, in, in itself is, is morally neutral. It is just the great endeavour of discovering more, making more sense, achieving more mastery over aspects of nature and so on. And you can make good use of that or you can make bad use of that. For example, you will have noticed that, that in the book I discussed the fact that in neuroscience there are some you know, wonderful things on the immediate horizon that are you know, beginning to happen already these uh, brain chip interfaces, so implants, uh, chips in in the brain, which could be used to control epilepsy and Parkinson's disease, uh, to help to control mood in people who are very severely depressed, maybe even to suppress very traumatic memories, which are causing a huge amount of suffering. But now you can see that those very good applications of that technology could also have very malign applications. Controlling mood, controlling thought, controlling memory, wiping out memories, maybe implanting them. I mean, you could see in a kind of George Orwell you know, dystopia how these things could be used for ill. In just the same way, the great advances in uh, um, physics uh, resulted in the atom bomb, as well as in the technology that you and I are using at this very moment. I mean, you know, all the marvels of communication now. So you can see good and bad can come out of it. This is another reason why we should all of us um, have a have a, a good grasp of what's happening so we can all be part of the conversation about which direction we go in. Should we go in the bad direction? Should we go in the good direction? If the bad direction is going to happen, then how are we going to manage it? And I know I'm butchering on here, but I should just mention in connection with the bad direction side of things uh, that um, In fact, I think I say say in the book, I've named this law after myself, so it's called Grayling's Law. (laughs) And this law is a very worrying law, okay, because it says anything, anything that can be done will be done if it brings profit or advantage to whoever can do it. It might be a government developing AI-run autonomous weapons systems Uh, or it could be an industry, a private industry, which develops things and wants to sell it, you know, to bad people, or it could be very wealthy individuals who want genetic engineering of their offspring to make them six foot five and blue eyed and IQ of 300 and all that, you know, these things can be done or soon will be able to be done. And they will be done because however you try to stop them or outlaw them, there are going to be people who will find a way of doing that. So this is a really bad law. <laughs> and it has another aspect to it, which is the things that can be done, like dealing with the climate change, won't be done if they bring too much cost to whoever can stop them. Perfect example, Donald Trump. Donald Trump stepping back from the Paris Accords on climate change and saying that he was going to open more um, coal mines. So there, so something we can do is try and deal with, with the, the climate threat. And if it brings costs to people like uh, you know Donald Trump and his voters, then the, he can step in and stop it. So this is a really bad law. And it means it, it's one of the major reasons why we need to be uh, sort of self-educated about what's happening in all these different domains so that we can be good participants in debating them and deciding what to do completely agree. And I think that one thing that
0: um, has kind of worried me over the last year, but perhaps even before that, was that um, we've kind of heard trust the science, follow the science. Um, and it seems to me like that science is really becoming politicized. And I don't want to, you know, um, blame either side for this, because my view has always been Perhaps the right would deny evolution. The left would deny evolutionary psychology. So it seems like we all have um, certain biases that can play into this. Um, But I would love to know, why is there so much um, scientific denialism in the world? Why is that?
1: Partly, I I think, because there is so much um, uh, sort of misunderstanding, uh, and even indeed so much ignorance of of science and and what it really means and involves. Mm -hmm. And this this takes us back to this whole point that we were starting with, which is about uh, understanding that there is so much more to know. You see, in the past, it was thought that as you acquired more knowledge, so you correlatively Mm -hmm. diminished the domain of ignorance. To yes. know more meant that you were ignorant about less. Now, the paradox, as we've discussed it is that the more we know, the more we know, we don't know. So the, the whole great landscape of ignorance gets bigger and bigger. And this means that there is a, a kind of a change, a reversal in the way we think about the nature of inquiry and what the result of inquiry is. So in the past, it was thought that we were heading towards certainty, towards truth. And um, if you, you know studied a bit of, of um, theory of knowledge in, in philosophy, you remember that uh, the, the great thing there was to try to refute the skeptic. The skeptic says, well, how can you be certain? How can you have knowledge if knowledge is fundamentally about truth? So, you know, is truth possible in scientific and historical inquiry and so on? And indeed, uh, um, I wrote a, a couple of books, um, sort of technical philosophical books, rather than books for the general public, like this one. And, and the difference between the two, by the way, is that in the technical philosophical books, all the words have to be longer than corrugated iron. It just sounds <laughs> <I'm> smart. <laughs> and, and these books were about the skeptical challenge and how we meet the skeptical challenge. But uh, having devoted a sort of a lifetime in, in philosophical terms, thinking about the, the theory of knowledge, I came to realize uh, some time ago that actually it's skepticism, which is our friend, not our enemy here. Because the, the skeptic tells us what it is we need to, you know, what challenges we need to meet in order to push the frontiers of knowledge outwards into that great, great ocean of ignorance. There are certain things that we have to be aware of and think about and and use. And instead of of thinking that we are going to achieve certainty or truth, although both those things and especially truth, of course, are the great ideal of inquiry, we want to try to get there. But what we realize is that since every discovery we make generates more questions that need to be answered, what what, what we must think of is not knowledge defined as absolutely certain truth, But instead, very soundly and powerfully supported, evidence supported um, uh, theories about how things are, where the theories in question are themselves defeasible. This is a great word, defeasible. It means that if you meet new evidence or if you have stronger and better arguments, you may have to adjust your theories or revise them or even replace them or give them up. This is one reason why I think science is such a huge achievement for for humankind, because the scientific approach, the scientific mindset, which is premised on this idea that that we must, you know, get as much support from the evidence as possible, be very rigorous and vigorous in testing it and being open uh, uh, about what's going to happen next and being prepared to change your mind if there's new evidence. I mean all this this whole thing is why we are where we are now with the degree of understanding we have about the world. It is an immense achievement. And when my word when, when you think about what we've what we have learned and what we can do with what we've learned just in the last 100 years in fundamental physics particle physics and in cosmology it is absolutely extraordinary and a great testament to the very best aspect of us human beings uh, that some of us, not me, but, but you know, the guys who've made these great discoveries, uh, you know, have really, have really opened our eyes.
0: I love that point. And on this show, we often talk about the uh, concept of strong ties loosely held, have strong beliefs, but be more than willing to change them in the Uh, presence of disconcerting evidence. Um, I want to read a paragraph from um, your book, which I absolutely loved reading. And it was also a little bit alarming to me. So I always enjoy reading paragraphs like that. You say in the book, the sheer extent of ignorance revealed to us by our giant strides in knowledge suggests that we are only at the beginning of the journey. If humanity can survive these first steps and there are no guarantees that we will, We are bedeviled by too much primitivism in our thinking and feeling. We still go to war, quarrel amongst ourselves, believe nonsense, waste our short lives on trivialities. The way the world will seem to others further along in humanity's stories are inconceivable to us now. I love that paragraph. It really hit me hard. So I would love to know when you kind of look at humanity, kind of where we are now, what things are really holding us back from progressing as a species?
1: Well, I think it's a, it's a, a complex of related things at the heart of which is this phenomenon which, um, as you know, Daniel Kahneman identified mm. as the contrast between fast thinking and slow thinking. Yes. Where fast thinking is jumping to conclusions, looking for the simple answer, the shallow answer, not really thinking things through, not challenging them, not, not being skeptical in the, in the right way. Whereas what he describes as slow thinking is, uh, you know, saying, well, hang on a second, can that be right? Let me just check this out. You know, and, and we live in an age now where there is just so much data. So you can go on the Internet and at the press of a button, the speed of light, you can get you know, data. And I'm using that word advisedly because data is not knowledge until you've organized it. Until you've seen the patterns in the data and made the connections, then you have knowledge. But even knowledge is, is not the last uh, step. The last step is understanding, understanding that knowledge, knowing what it means, knowing what it's worth, knowing how to use it, knowing which bits of it are, are worth using. You know, so the, the, all of this requires reflection. It, it requires thought. And, and you, you you will know that um, remark, I miss, uh, everybody knows what Bertrand Russell famously and very amusingly said, which is that most people would rather die than think, and most people do. And that, of course, is the really great tragedy of the world, you know, that, that there are people snatching at confusions and snatching at beliefs and, and, and never investigating them. And, and this is because there is a kind of there is a kind of intellectual laziness which comes naturally to all of us. You know, we, just, we really like closure. We just want a simple uh, answer. Now, you know, with, without intending uh, the disrespect to anybody, it's just simply true that you could explain the major ideas uh, and, and teachings of any religion in less than half an hour but it takes a bit longer than that to understand physics. So you, know, you, can see, you can see where the contrast comes from. You can see how it is that, that most people just, they take out of the, uh, the sort of freezer of ideas, a kind of frozen pizza of, of, of a view, a belief, a religion, a, you know, something. Uh, and and that's, that's what they heat up and, and use instead of going out there and you know, baking the pizza dough themselves, et cetera, which is what science is about. I think that that's a big part of the reason why all the sources of, of conflict and disagreement, quarrels, you know, mainly you know, sort of religious ones, but also economic competition and um, the way that our even our advanced so-called liberal democracies have have developed but turning them into competitions between political factions who want to get their hands on the levers of power, uh, and 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 most people in this very very Uh, overpopulated world of ours are busy with their own lives and careers and their children and so on so you know it's just it seems too much to to get involved with everything and, and to know everything it just seems like too much of a burden and so people kind of ignore it and they want the simple answers but the simple answers are usually the misleading ones.
0: Love that answer you know one thing that I've kind of picked up on speaking to you today is we talked about you know there's uh we're clearly a very tribal species you know i mean you just got to take a trip on twitter to to see that you know i mean even in the book which you said there's there's even a, a tribalism in academia between say the humanities and the sciences
1: is it possible for us to unify yes i mean i believe it is but but it, it does take work uh and um it, it the, the the work really requires certain stages so, so the, the first stage is to to encourage people to to think a bit more, to to be more reflective, to become better at evaluating what other people say and what they themselves think uh, and the grounds that that they give. One thing I've noticed uh, is um, in the rather bad-tempered debates of the last few years uh, over things like Brexit and so on, that that when um, journalists ask people, why did you vote so-and-so? Why did you vote Leave or why did you vote Remain? The question, the form of the question, why did you um, invite her? because answer? Uh, you know, you've got to give a reason. And here's the problem, that, that because people tend to be, um, you know, too busy in, in, in a way, or too distracted, um, really to think things through about why they would vote a certain way, or, you know, what principles they're, they're acting on. Uh, they, they tend not to have reasons, rather they have feelings. Mm. And, and a lot of people vote on their feelings rather than on something which is sort of worked out. Because you can imagine thinking something through and realizing that logic says you should do one thing, but your feelings go in a different direction. And if you are a truly rational person, now there's a word, rational. So, you know, when I was talking about, about science, science looking for the most powerfully supported theories, the, the, the whole thing about science is precisely that it, it involves rational belief. And if you think about that word "rational." The first part is "ratio," which means proportion. Proportioning your theories to your evidence, proportioning what you believe or how you act to the the real reasons that you've explored for for thinking or acting that way. So most people, uh, I'm you know don't, don't be sort of unkind about people because as I say, I mean I do think people have. Are busy, so they don't spend a lot of time thinking. Well, let me dig down into the deep principles of conservatism or, or Labour Party policies, and then I'll make a decision no matter what I feel. You know, that's not going to happen a great deal. So, so, you get people voting on their feelings or how their parents voted, like in religion, people, most people have the religion their parents had, and so forth. They don't think these things through. There's the problem. So if you ask somebody, why, why did you do so-and-so, and they did it because they felt a certain way, they're extremely unlikely to say that, to say, well, I just felt like it, or that, that I've always felt, I you know, feel hostile towards that and I feel good about that. Instead they say, because, and then they trot out some reason. And, and I remember being very struck, uh, listening to people trying to find a reason, like, like after their EU referendum, um, there was one uh, rather lovely old lady. She was asked why she voted leave. And she said because she she wanted the old light bulbs back. You know, the ones that use up. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, this is a perfect example of somebody just snatching at something that they can think of to offer as a reason. And it's not, that wasn't the reason. It was because they felt a certain way. So long-winded answer to, to a, a question that you asked, really, which is about, You know, is it possible for there to be agreement? Well, my answer is the first stage of getting to where we can achieve agreement, but through rational debate and discussion, looking at the facts and realizing that the whole world has a lot of common problems that we should be working together on. The first stage in that is uh, you know, helping ourselves to, to think and sometimes to accept a conclusion, even if we don't feel that we want to accept it, but go with the logic.
0: It's interesting because it seems as if we live in uh, very emotional times. You know, and one thing that I've noticed is, you know, speaking to people, it seems like if you present an idea, people will attack you rather than attack the idea. Um, It seems like kind of the idea of holding perhaps charitable positions about um, people seems to be diminishing but kind of this is what confuses me because um you know stephen pinker he wrote enlightenment now clearly we're making you know great strides as a society but then kind of my own experience of say being out in person and um you know being on social media and these things they seem to be kind of um at odds with each other so i would love to know so we've clearly made massive scientific Uh, technological advancements. But how's the kind of moral
1: progress? Has that matched it? Um, Great philosophical answer coming up. Yes (laughs) and no. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, you know, I I think uh, sort of more so-called advanced or richer societies, whatever, more more democratic societies, Um, the progress that, that has been made, very, very incomplete, you know, but some progress anyway, uh, on, on the position of women in society and their opportunities. The fact that we have fewer cruel sports involving animals like cockfighting and, and bulldog fighting and so on. The fact that, that we are kinder to animals, we don't beat horses in the street and what have you, does show that progress has been made to some extent. The fact that gay people can, you know, at, at least in metropolitan areas can, you know, be out and open and can show their affection to people they care about and can even... Marry and and all that. I mean, that's a huge amount of progress as well. Mm. So yes, I mean, from one point of view, a great deal of progress. But I do have a, a, you know, concern really about social media, because when the internet really, really came on stream back in the 90s, or late 80s, 90s, and we, we all thought, this is fantastic, because there's now going to be this universal agora, this great marketplace of ideas, discussion, debate, a great democracy. And, of course, it's turned into a great lavatory wall of people scribbling <laughs> there, you know, all their racism and hate speech and the nastiness, and, my God, it's just absolutely appalling. Well, there are actually a lot of vileness out there on social media, these dreadful attacks on, on, on women in public life. You know, I mean, it's really appalling, uh, some of the things that people say. could be pretty easily dealt with if we got rid of anonymity. Uh, I know that there was a serious problem um, for people who need to be anonymous you know, because of whistleblowing or things like that. But it seems to me that it would be a price worth paying in a way to clean up the internet, which is just a sewer at the moment. It's just too horrible. Not least because there is so much falsehood. There are so many conspiracy theories. Uh, and one of the worst things about it, of course, is now, I often say this, I uh, ask people, I say, uh, how much did you pay for your email account or for your WhatsApp or for your TikTok or something? Well, nothing, it's free. I'll say, yeah, I'll say it's free. Because every single time you touch your device, you are paying with your data. And these platforms are harvesting your data, they're profiling you, they're selling your data on to advertisers and political parties, and you're being micro-targeted. I mean, one of the things that really shocked me a few years ago was you know, you go on Google to get some information. You don't just get information. You get information that Google thinks you would like, given your profile. And that's a very undermining thing to know, isn't it? I'm getting the information it thinks I would like to have. No, thank you. I, I want some information is, is what I want. So it's kind of troubling uh, the, the, how things are with social media. So getting rid of anonymity would, would be one big thing. And making the platforms... Uh, co-liable for hate speech and what have you. That would also make Facebook and other people really smarten up their act a little bit as well, you know. But anyway, the great problem is we start uh, introducing censorship and controls like they do in China and Iran, stopping people getting access to things. And, and you know, that, that's so typical that the bad guys always make things worse for, for the good guys and, and mess things up in what could have been a really wonderful tool that all of us could have made use of. But nowadays, so to get back to the point, so I keep on divigating. So we just get back to that point about, about um, uh, h- having access to information, um, but needing to be able to think about what it's worth. So being able to evaluate it mm. and being able to, to think about it very critically. So because all that information is out there, you know, the old-fashioned model of education was that the teacher would download from her necktop computer to your necktop computer, what fact she knew, 1066 and E equals MC squared and so on, okay? But now all that's on the internet. So now what we need is to know how to deal with it and how to make use of it. This is the thing that education should be focusing on because if everybody uh, were um, helped and, and even indeed forced in a way to think about the things that they're going to say or do or vote or or whatever, then we would be moving towards that um, possibility of agreement and peace in the world.
0: completely agree. I I thought that was a very good answer. Um, I would love to kind of wrap up this segment because we've got through... So, so much. There was so much gold in what we've discussed so far. I'd love to touch on religion a bit. I mean, I watched your debate on the Unbelievable channel, and I have to say I thought that was absolutely fantastic. I will put a link below if anyone wants to spend a good hour. I thought it was fantastic. Um, just kind of where we are now, um, do you think that a scientific worldview has perhaps... Um, validated a secularist or atheistic view of reality as opposed to a religious one?
1: Um, Yes, I I do. Now, this is a complex matter, and and we're in a a situation of transition and process. So let's just notice a couple of things. One is the vast majority of people... Now, let, let me revise that, okay? Not the vast majority, but probably the majority of people other than... The, the the Chinese. So the Chinese, of course, are a very large segment of the world population. So 1.3 billion people. So they're one seventh of the world population. And and the Chinese have never had uh, religion. Uh, they never believed in a god. Hmm. They are, just to generalize like mad here, but they are a very superstitious people. So they have, you know, ideas about the ancestors and burning paper money for them on on the, the day of yeah. Have uh, one one day a year when they go to sweep the graves and everything, and uh, sort of famously, uh, funerals might have a Confucian and a Buddhist and a Methodist and a, you know, a Rabbi just to head your bets and stuff, you know. But but the, the, the Chinese uh, tradition has never had a supreme being, a god, uh, and an organised religion around it. So we we cannot say that um, this is true of all humanity, but all non-Chinese humanity anyway the majority of people in, uh, among them have some kind of religious outlook or, or some kind of supernaturalistic outlook. But whereas that kind of outlook was functionally dominant uh, uh, over people's minds and over societies and how societies were organized up until about the 17th century or up until the enlightenment of the 18th century, perhaps, mm. it no longer is. The scientific worldview is the functionally dominant worldview, even though the majority of people still have supernaturalistic outlooks. So aeroplanes, computers, uh, electricity supply, modern medicine, all that, that has nothing to do with religion. That's all secular science, and it is what runs the world. So people have their beliefs, and some people go to war and, and commit acts of terrorism on the basis of their beliefs and so on, but beliefs don't provide electricity and water to your home or, or, um, you know, uh, make your COVID vaccine for you. So now the interesting thing is that that therefore the the functional dominance of of science is slowly transforming the world. Look at the United States of America, a country which, um, you know, when it was invaded by the Puritans, (laughs) started to take over the uh, Native Americans country from them. Um, but was founded on on a religious basis. This is one one reason why the US has always been, you know, so there are over 20,000 Protestant denominations in the United States. Uh, So it's thought of as being a very religious country and you cannot claim to be an atheist if you're gonna try to be a president or even get into the Senate or anything. And yet, if you look at the Pew polling data in the US over the last 50 years, you see that it is increasingly secularizing back in the 1970s it was something like uh, you know sort of i don't know less than 10 percent of people who claimed that they were nuns n-o-n-e no no religion (laughs) nuns it's a great word isn't it and and now and now it's in the region of about 25 percent and much higher than that among people under the age of 40 so you can see society even in the united states is moving in a very secular direction but at the same time Religious voices are getting louder and and, um, certain kinds of fundamentalists, whether Christian or, or Muslim, are becoming more active. Why? Well, because if you drive, you know, an animal into a corner, it's going to be fiercer and make a bigger noise and be more dangerous. And I think this is what's happening in our world at the moment. What looks like a resurgence of religion is actually the anxiety of the religions in the face of increasing secularism, and the functional dominance of the secular world outlook. That, at any rate, is my analysis. It may have a tinge of wishful thinking in it.
0: <laughs> I listened to uh, Nick Stevens' debate with Steven Pinker, and Nick um, attributed our moral outlook, kind of how we know right from wrong, to um mostly judeo-christian values um i'm not going to contend with with our idea i mean that's that's not for, for me to, to say but i would love to kind of ask you do you think that we can be moral as a society without a god
1: oh golly yes and uh, there's no, no no question about it so let's just take a couple of steps back one he has this business about oh our moral mor- morality is based on Judeo Christian values, and without it, we wouldn't be moral, and blah, blah. Well, that, that, that's a load of BS. I mean, <laughs> it, 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 it's really important, you see, that this is where history comes into the picture, okay? Yes. Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire in the year 380 AD. So that's towards the end of the fourth century of the Common Era in the Edict of Thessalonica issued by the Emperor Theodosius I, who happened to be a Christian. And this was, uh, what, 70 years or so after uh, the Emperor Constantine, in the Edict of Milan of 313 AD, so I'll be very accurate, my date's here, um, he decriminalized Christianity. Because you have to remember, the word religion comes from a Latin um, noun, uh, verb, sorry, religio religare, which means to bind. The word ligature comes from the same root, it means to bind. So in the Roman Empire, which was huge in those times, I mean, just think it was like from here to Mars in terms of you know, travel and extent and everything back in ancient times. were so many peoples, ethnicities, languages, cultures, traditions, that to bind the empire together, it needed a, a ligature, a religion. So this is the worship of the emperor or Jupiter or something. And the great feast days of the gods were big public events of bringing the community together, binding them together. But the Christians um, didn't want to worship Jupiter or the emperor. And so the Roman Empire thought that they were bad guys because they weren't taking part and they weren't allowing themselves to be bound into the communities. And that is why from time to time, Christians were persecuted. But then Constantine's mother, Uh, was a Christian and you know what mothers are. So Constantine uh, decriminalized Christianity and right at the end of his life he became a Christian himself. So in the fourth century a lot of um, wealthy people, middle class, upper class, uh, rich people in the Roman Empire uh, became fashionable to become Christian. They had two little problems. One was But in the scriptures, it says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to get into heaven. Hmm. What a problem if you're a rich Roman. Who comes (laughs) to the rescue? St. Augustine. St. Augustine said, oh, don't worry about it. If you give alms to the poor, you know, make donations to the poor, the souls of the poor will waft you into heaven. So you'll be okay. The other problem was, the Roman empire was a huge military empire. And the scriptures say, turn the other cheek, blessed are the peace, the peacemakers, blessed are the meek, you know, don't, don't fight your enemy, but love your enemy, etc. This is a bit of a problem for a, a military empire. So what are we to say about that? No problem, says St. Augustine. Doesn't it say in the scriptures, tells the story about the centurion who came to Jesus and said, my son is sick, could you please come and uh, cure him? Uh, or c- could you please cure him so jesus said okay i'll come with you and the centurion said no no you don't have to come with me all you have to do is just give the order and he will be you, because you know i'm an army officer i know i've just given order and it gets done so you could do that see said saint augustine he, he he cured a centurion son so he was okay with soldiers so it's okay to be a military empire you know, blah blah so you, you can see how all that worked okay but notice that's fourth century christianity and and its Jewish roots and Islam are very young religions. Yes. They're very young religions. For a thousand years before Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire, a thousand years or nearly a thousand years before, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, the Stoics, the Epicureans were talking about the good and worthwhile life. We're talking about moral principles. We're talking about ethics. And in fact, if you you ask yourself the following question, what do the scriptures tell me about what it is to be moral, to be good? It will tell you two kinds of thing. It will tell you to look after the widows and the orphans and and love your neighbor, but then all moral theories do that. There's um, an ethical theory uh, owing to a guy called Mozi, the Moists in China, two centuries before Jesus, which taught exactly the same thing. Look after the and orphans, love your fellow man. But the other thing the scriptures tell you is give away all your money. Make no plans. Don't marry. If your family try to stop you, turn your back on them. Now, the reason why, and, and then, you know, hundreds, thousands of people went out off into the desert to be desert fathers, Hesychasts, Anchorites, um, living in caves or like Simon Stylites Stylite up on the top of a pillar in order not to have money, not to make plans and what have you. And this is because the early Christians thought that the end of the world was coming very soon. The Messiah had risen and was coming back tomorrow, this weekend, next week. So you don't have money. You don't make plans. You don't start a family. And if your family get in the way, you know, your soul is more important than your family. So you just turn your back on them. So several hundred years went by and uh, come the fourth century, Where are we gonna get our morals from if the the way to earn the kingdom is to give away your money and run off to the desert? Well, the answer is you import it wholesale from non-religious Greek philosophy. Most of what people think of as Christian morality comes from Stoicism. It comes from the the non-religious ethical uh, schools uh, of the Greek philosophers and the Hellenistic philosophers. So this this thing about, oh, we got our morality from religion. And then the final point. I I know I'm giving answers which are far too long. I'm sorry about it. But there's always so much to say. (laughs) The final point on this is uh, an important one. The concept of morals and the concept of ethics are two different concepts. They are related, but they are also importantly different. And you can tell this by looking at the etymology of the words. So the word ethics comes from ancient Greek word ethos, which means character. Mm. And ethics is an answer to the question, what sort of person should I be? How should I live? What values should shape my life? Morals, the word morals, comes from a word coined, in fact, by Cicero. And Cicero was very interested in, in sort of translating Greek thought into the Latin conversation. And he, he took a, a, a word most... Moris, which means custom or etiquette plural mores which we still use today to talk about customs and he adapted it into this word moralia you know to mean that those aspects of behavior like telling the truth keeping faith keeping promises not cheating on your wife too often and all that you know that that's morals okay and you can see that your morals might flow from your ethics but they're not the same thing as it moral outlooks change the morality of the Victorians is different from our morality today. The morality of, of uh, people living in Shakespeare's time is very different from the Victorians. Yes, yep. But the ethical debate, that comes all the way from, from Socrates, from Aristotle. And in fact, pretty well, most educated people, anyway, have been, in practice, they've been humanists, with a small h. That is their outlook, their ethical outlook and the morals that flow from it have come more from the principles of philosophy than from the teachings of a religion.
0: I love it. I love it. I appreciate we've got about eight minutes left and and I want to be respectful of your time. I've just got uh, one last question on religion and then I'll ask you our surefire last question, which we asked all our guests. Um, So I I think that there's um, a lot of coherence in what you said, but there. Um, I think that I would posit that one thing which religion has definitely given people is that it definitely provides um, a kind of a sense of solace through difficult times. Uh, there is kind of a, a narrative there, which I, I think can help people. And I know I'm using religion as a kind of broad umbrella term there. Um, but let's just say for in the absence of God or a religious narrative, what would be the best way to make it through tough times, difficult times, life traumas without the presence of a God or a religious uh, outlook?
1: Okay, so, so there, there are several things that that would be very, very useful to point out here, so I'll try and be brief, okay? One of them is to, to think about the Stoic outlook. It's mm. interesting that Stoicism is making quite a comeback, actually, and yes. more and more people are finding out about it. The, the Stoic outlook comes down fundamentally to saying With regard to those things that you cannot influence or control, like earthquakes or tsunamis or growing older and so forth, you you must face them with courage. Face them with courage and with things that you can influence or control, like your own um, fears, your own appetites, your own feelings, try to achieve some self-mastery. Because if you have courage towards the outer and some degree of self-control, self-mastery towards the inner, then they said you can live with nobility. You can live a, a noble life. So that, that would be one thing to say, that, that we each of us have the, the opportunity to sort of get a grip and, and try to live in that, in that noble way remembering, of course, always that we are social beings and that we need other people. We need friends. We need to love and be loved. We need to be parts of communities. And that's very important, too. And so that leads to the second point. A lot of people say, think of a a lonely old lady. Surely her religious faith is a huge comfort and support to her. Answer, yes, it is. Uh, But then almost any false belief can be very comforting if you clasp onto it uh, hardly enough. Surely it would be so much better if somebody or some people in her community gave her the friendship, the affection, the the support that would really make her feel comfortable and and wanted and accepted. Uh, And that leads to the third point, which is this. How many people do you know who, when they first fall in love, you know that, that period when you meet somebody and it's very mutual, and then you're swinging from the chandelier, and it's actually fantastic. <laughs> and you're so infatuated with one another, the rest of the world doesn't exist. In that state of mind, who is religious? Nobody. Okay. In that state of mind, the only thing you want is that other person to be with that other person. And, and, and th- th- that is an indication of the fact that uh, th- the sort of yearning, and, and there is a yearning. I mean, it's a wonderful thing about human beings. David Hume, the philosopher, said we, we always attribute the good things to God and the bad things to people. Actually, it's a fantastic thing about human beings that we can respond as we do to beauty, that we can feel, you know, real love for, for uh, our, our children or, or people we care about. These are things about, about us. And things about us that we should honour in just the same way as we should, you know, fight against those aspects of us which are greedy and cruel and unkind and and ungenerous. So it's about us. And and it's about finding the um, human generosity and, and sympathy and connection, but also not accepting the bad things that people can do. You know, you've got to have a line in the sand about that. But it is about human life, human reality, human meanings. That's where the real... Uh, focus of value lies. And you can escape it and escape all the responsibilities that you have to yourself even by saying, oh, well, you know, there is a great big um, something up in the sky who's going to sort it all out in the end. Uh, And and that, in in a way, is a kind of an evasion. And you can see that it is because in Christianity, one of the great sins is the sin of pride. That is thinking you can do it yourself. Mm. One of the, one, the, the standard prayer in Christianity is, uh, our Father, thy will be done, not my will be done. The handing yourself over, handing responsibility over. Thinking of yourself as something fundamentally weak and sick in need of salvation. And the, on, on the sort of uh, you know, classical humanist view or classical ethical view, that's not good enough, I'm afraid you know, stand up, take responsibility, do it, you know. The very word Islam means submission. So the whole thing about religion is to give yourself over, to give up, to to uh, ex- accept uh, an interpretation of yourself and your life as weak and incomplete and uh, in need of outside support, you know, and, and you know, to have all, all the, the, the false hopes that have come from that. And I say to people, look, You know, do a test. Try to light and heat your house by prayer and compare that to lighting and heating your house by connecting it to the local electricity supply and see which background uh, theory is more pragmatically justified.
0: I love it, man. Where can these guys connect with you and where can they check out your book?
1: Oh, I I think uh, um, the book should be sort of in a, every good bookshop, <laughs> I hope. Um, and uh, uh, so, you know, I, I, I quite often do, do these sorts of talks and things and then also, of course, lecture at, uh, at my college in London. i um, always delighted to, to meet people and have an opportunity to chat and talk and exchange ideas.
0: I loved your book. I'm going to put a link below for everyone there. As I will put your... Uh, the debate which you had on the Unbelievable Channel, which I thought was fantastic. Uh, I just want to pay my gratitude to you for coming on. Um, You've been in this field for a long time. You've done so much great work. Uh, Like I said, I loved reading your book. Everyone should get a copy of it. So thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a real pleasure for me.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me on. It was a real pleasure to meet you.